You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith and together with Ben Radford, managing editor of Skeptical Inquirer and Dr. Karen Stolzno, skeptical investigator, blogger and co-host of Point of Inquiry, we examine monsters and monster-related issues through the shiny magnifying glass of science. This week, your Monster Talk hosts are getting ready for Dragon Con, and especially the Skeptics track. Thursday night, September 2nd, 2010, Ben Radford and I will be at the second annual Jeff Medkiff Star Party, which is put on by the Atlanta Skeptics. Then Saturday, in the Dragon Con Skeptics track at the Hilton Hotel in downtown Atlanta, Ben and I will be doing a live recording of Monster Talk, and we'll be looking for all those monster questions you've been shouting at your iPod. If you're at the convention, please drop by and say hello. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Today's interview is with two members of the Skeptic Society. Dr. Donald Prothero is a professor of geology at Occidental College and a lecturer in geobiology at the California Institute of Technology. Daniel Boxton is a Canadian writer, illustrator, and skeptic, and he's the editor of Junior Skeptic Magazine, an illustrated section inside Skeptic Magazine, which is targeted at children but beloved by adults as well. A quick note about the audio today. We were in a small room at TAM 8, the amazing meeting when we recorded this interview. But Daniel Loxton sat a little bit too far from the mic. Not his fault. We were rather cramped. In order to level the sound enough to hear Daniel's contributions, you hear the breathing of everyone else in the interview. It becomes quite loud. I just wanted to let you know that we weren't gasping for air whenever Daniel spoke. Uh, normally during an interview, we have separate audio tracks that can filter that sort of thing out. Not so in this particular recording situation. Regardless, I think you'll find this an extremely interesting interview, and I hope you enjoy it. Monster Talk. So, so we're here with uh, Dr. Donald Prothero. Right. Got it? Okay. And uh, Daniel Loxton from Skeptic Magazine. Hi, guys. It's good to see you in person, so this is nice. And so, you, Donald, you actually come from a, a long time ago in the Skeptic Society, like from the very beginning, really, right? Yeah, when Michael founded it in the late 80s, uh, he was teaching part-time at Occidental, where I still teach, and so that's how I met him, 
And then when he was forming the Skeptic Society, he needed a you know editorial board of all the people he could find that represented different disciplines. So he asked me to do it. So that's why I was there. So I've had a you know off and on role. You know, and he needs me to speak or write something or edit something. I'm happy to do it for him. So your expertise is in uh, paleontology and the uh, American uh, prehistoric rhino. Yes, um, I'm a vertebrate paleontologist by training. I work on fossil mammals primarily. Uh, I'm one of those kids who got hooked on dinosaurs at age four and never grew up, like many of my peers were. And um, what I do mostly is work on those issues, but I also work on areas of geology that are related to it as well. And so I have my foot in many fields simultaneously. And Daniel, you were with Junior Skeptic, a part of Skeptic Magazine. How did you get involved with Skeptic Magazine? Well, I, uh, I finished up art school, and uh, I was very qualified to herd sheep and make pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Which, oh, okay, well, that explains As it. We, well, we okay, sorry, I was a professional shepherd. Which naturally leads to Skeptic Magazine. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I, I had uh, followed the skeptics literature for a long time as a, as a hobby. And a lot of spare reading time in the pasture. Yeah, yeah, I used to, we used to carry battered old copies of Skeptic Magazine and, and uh, Demon Haunted World in our backpacks, uh, my my brothers and I. And um, anyway, uh, finishing up school, uh, having done a little bit of uh, university level uh, skeptical organizing, I just started writing uh, to uh, you know the, the big skeptics and humanist magazines and, and offering to do little pro bono things for them. And um, along the way, I, I did a, a free inquiry cover. I did some illustrations for skeptic just on a pro bono basis. And, and uh, eventually, the, the guy they had on Junior Skeptic fell through and. I got a shot at a single issue, and they liked what I did, so, cool. so I've been doing it ever since. Well, now, do, do all shepherds carry skeptical literature, or is it something <laughs> yeah. specific to family? Only the exceedingly handsome ones. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, and, but seriously, does your family have a tendency towards con- contemplative uh, lifestyle? I mean, is, is, it seems like uh, you could just as well chug a beer and watch some sheep. I mean, uh, well, yeah, we, we used to do that on, on, the, on the days off. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you want your wits about you when you're watching sheep, but... Okay. That should be dangerous for strangely enough. Well, the reason I, I specifically wanted to talk to you too is because I heard you were working on a cryptozoological book. I heard this through Facebook, so it may not be true. So. <laughs> <laughs> if it was on the internet, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sort of emerged. Um, you know, I was thinking about uh, working on another book after the last one I finished, and and then I was just out of that of blue. I don't remember why I decided to do this. I did a Google or a uh, Amazon search on the top. 100 best-selling titles when I hit cryptozoology as a prompt. 100% of those were all pro-cryptids. Not a single book on the entire Amazon list debunks cryptozoology as a field or even... There's a couple of books out on Bigfoot that are anti-Bigfoot. And on a couple of Nessie, right? And that's about the total, sum total of anything book length, right? There's smaller stuff and shorter stuff in, in, in other literature. But, you know, when you talk about books, that's about it. There, there, there are some very strong critical books on, on Bigfoot and Nessie. Right, and right. Those two have gotten attention. Uh, I'll say Dave Daigling's name here. Right. right. <laughs> I have book, too. So. Uh, Ronald, Ronald Binns uh, oh. comes to mind as well. Right. But, you know. But the, for a survey. Yeah. But, but exactly. The that was is, the word I was trying to think of. Right. And the point is that there's a broader approach to all cryptozoology that has to to be emphasized. It's not just one cryptid at a time. It's the whole idea of how do you approach the whole topic and what kinds of scientific principles are relevant to the issues of how you decide if this is real or not. And they, they, you know, they, they, they put this in once in a while, but they, no one ever said, let's frame it all that way. And I figured if there's nothing on that entire market, the first hundred titles, there's got to be somebody who will buy it. 
Where do you start? It's such a huge topic. <laughs> yes. And we both have full-time jobs, too. Right? Yeah. Um, well, you, you uh, start at the library. <laughs> Read a <laughs> book. <laughs> and, and online, too. Um, uh, yeah, a, uh, uh, you start by undertaking a, a literature review on each each one of these component uh, uh, subtopics. Sub so... Uh, what are the major books on Loch Ness Monster or Yetis or, mm-hmm. or whatever? And uh, uh, start uh, uh, digging through the the, the secondary uh, sources, and then you work back from there to the to the primary sources, trying to figure out what, who those authors were actually talking to or where they got their facts and, uh, out of their hat. Some sometimes, <laughs> yeah. uh, other places. not always. <laughs> you know, there, there's some good good research out there. And uh, uh, you just uh, start immersing yourself in the in the literature. I mean, I, I, I have a reasonable grounding in, in cryptozoological literature. Anyway, it's been. A, I mean, you performed all that research the first time for Junior Skeptic, right? Yeah, I've covered most of these things for Junior right. Skeptic, but I'm, I'm going deeper this time. And that's part of why we got together because I was the one who proposed it to my editor at Columbia University Press and said, "This is a title that no one's written, and you can't go wrong." And, but I said the you met person we need to work with is Daniel because he's worked on all these topics before and he's already created a junior skeptic article about each one of them or nearly all of them so you know that's already a resource you know we might as well do this thing together so yeah this is the first time we've ever seen each other in person <laughs> yeah, he lives in Canada, right? I don't go there very often. Well, neither does he come to Southern California very often. Well, so. it's, it's, uh, I felt the same thing here. It's like I just sat down and we worked together very nicely after working remotely together. So mm-hmm. it's very nice. It's very civil. Well, but, thank goodness for the internet. We can <laughs> communicate so much that forget that we actually hadn't met in person until we actually did. So yeah, so this is this will be interesting because you're doing kind of the same thing we do on Monster Talk, which is you're bringing together the the folklore and anecdotal side and historical and uh, the, the stories, basically, right. with the science, what's scientifically feasible, plausible, and the scientific method in examining the claims. Right. So, And that's something I felt that I could contribute, because I haven't done the kind of work Daniel's done. But as a trained paleontologist, as a trained biologist, you know, I have a lot of experience in a lot of this stuff uh, that's relevant to actual things that did exist, uh, paleontology especially. And so I could bring to the, in that first introductory section of the book I've written primarily myself with Daniel's input, uh, bring to it things like you know, the arguments from you know, population biology, the arguments from what kinds of field biologists know, and so on. And I've been done this kind of research myself, so I'm very familiar with it. And, and likewise, when they say, well, this thing is, you know, like, well, Kelly Bambembe is running around the Congo. Well, we have good reasons as paleontologists to doubt this because we know what the fossil record of Africa is in great detail for almost that entire interval since the dinosaurs last lived in Africa. And so we can make very strong arguments. And then most people don't even know that data exists, but paleontologists would. And so that's all stuff I haven't seen anyone else mm-hmm. really bring to the table. You know, mm-hmm. you, most of the people who work in this were not trained as professional biologists. And it typically shows when you read what they're doing because their their lack of training is real obvious. So Don Don is very well positioned to speak to the kind of prior plausibility of these cryptids, and then I'm well positioned to tease out the the historical evolution of the the fake lore of Nessie or, or whatever. So hopefully it'll 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 reach away in a way that nothing has ever done before because it's always done piecemeal. It's either Nessie or Bigfoot, but you know there's a broader you know this is how you have to start to talk about any of these things, because they're all in the same boat, although I guess some of the Nessie believers don't believe in Bigfoot and vice versa, so they don't necessarily like each other. Yeah, right. Why is that? 
I don't know. I mean, that's the other thing I've got to do. I haven't written the last chapter yet, which is what I've been doing a lot of research on. I've been digging and I've been poking the social psychologists and asking, what, any, what would you say is the explanation for how people can cling to these things for so long? And what kinds of people become cryptozoologists rather than real zoologists? You know? And I'm getting a little bit of it, but I don't really have a clear crystallization of that, what that chapter is going to say yet. So. I think one, part, of, part of the difficulty is that it's a mixed population. You know? right. it's, it's a largely amateur population, but, it, but there are people uh, motivated by all kinds of different things. Right. Um, you know, genuine and, and uh, legitimate uh, uh, intellectual curiosity is part of it. Right. And there's some interesting uh, people like Roy Mackle, who used to be in Chicago, and so on, who started as legitimate professional scientists. And for reasons I've never, I haven't heard all the stories yet because some of these guys are not not even around anymore. Uh, you know, they just went off the wagon, you know. And suddenly, Roy Mackle had a long history history in Chicago where he earned tenure. You know, he was a good, well-respected evolutionary biologist. And then one day he stopped, and all he did was chase McCallum with Bembe, and uh, and it was very strange. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I I, I agree and. Uh, at one end of the spectrum, you have guys like that. On the other end of the spectrum, you have guys like Frank Searle, uh, uh, a Nessie researcher who uh, uh, hoaxed a great many pictures and was, was yeah. considered uh, a very, very fringe, uh, to the degree that, that he evidently firebombed another <laughs> block mass monster organization. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, he's passed away now, so we can talk about A lot of these guys are gone now, too, so... Mm-hmm. Well, what, what do you you talk about uh, zoology and cryptozoology, and that, that's always one of the things that I find is an interesting distinction. I mean, a lot, a lot of a lot of a lot of people like to say, "Well, cryptozoology is a science," and of course, like, well, how exactly? But then they're like, well, like you know, they talk about, well, you know, we're we're still finding new animals. Well, cryptozoologists aren't zoologists. Aren't. So we're, 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 yeah, Darren Nash has a very interesting thing on his uh, blog, which comes from Britain, and uh, Darren Nash is a trained paleontologist, also. And, and a future guest. Oh, good. Yeah. good. yeah, Darren's very clever. You'll yeah. enjoy him. Yeah. And uh, he points out, yeah, if you technically speaking, they're making new discoveries of animals they didn't know about all the time, but they're always butterflies and beetles and maybe a few lizards now and then, and once in a while a rare small mammal. Uh, but nothing of the scale of Nessie or the Bigfoot or anything else. And the big difference is these people are looking for things that are in the conventional mode of animals you expect you know, not too long in the future to be found. And all the things that are classically cryptids, like Nessie and Yeti and Bigfoot, are way outside that. You know, they, they violate all sorts of scientific principles for one reason or another, and that's where it gets off in the fringe. You know, it's not just new animals. It's new animals that are like, as you know, in the Carl Sagan sense, extraordinary evidence required to, to prove they exist. And, but, but would they capture the imagination of so many people? That's right. They no, because right, they aren't, right. they're not glamorous. And, right, right. and that's why no one knows this is actually happening, right. except those of us in professional zoology. I, I think there's a distinction to be made between, on the one hand, the pursuit of you know, big cool monsters, which in many cases, you know, the, the book can be closed on some of those. Some of those we looked, they're not there. Um, and, and people continue to search for them, I, I think, in many cases, hopelessly. Uh, that on the one hand. On the other hand, the kind of general strategy of, of ethnozoology, of, of asking local people what kinds of animals live in your area, that's that sort of thing, which can be a fruitful. It can, but you got to be careful because you watch some of these things and they will put up pictures 
of the animal they're trying to find and lead the witness. And, they, of course, the natives, are, you know, they often don't make a distinction between an animal they actually hunt and animals part of their folklores. And, then, of course, their communication barriers with languages and all the rest. So you see this repeatedly on that monster quest I did about Makili Mbembe. You know, these uh, two creationist uh, explorers, I put the quotations around that, uh, go out there and they lead these natives by putting up pictures of animals they do know and then putting up a sauropod sort of image. And, of course, you know, they'll, <laughs> their, their mythology certainly includes that. doesn't prove they've actually seen it alive. <laughs> so- we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Do, do you think, I mean, for example, amateur astronomy, those amateur astronomers make real contributions to oh, science. Yes. Is much of that going on with amateur zoology? Um, I don't know of a lot of it. Um, some societies have a big amateur component. So the main meeting I do every year is Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. People study backbone animals, such as dinosaurs and mammals, on fish and everything. And the meeting is 50% amateur, which is very rare for a professional society. But that's because the profession itself is so tiny. If we held it to just the professionals, we couldn't run the meeting. It's only three or 400 of us in the whole world. So the result is that we have a lot of amateurs in it, but the majority of those amateurs have little or no contribution to make unless they are affiliated with a place where someone uses them in the summertime to do excavation or you know, volunteers, you know, clean casts. And we have a lot of what we call dino wannabes. And, uh, you know, we're happy to have them because they subsidize the professionals, but they're not really contributing in my ranch way. In fact, more often than not, when they do you know, volunteer to give talks or posters, they're so embarrassingly bad that, you know, it just drives you crazy. And I was program chair of that society for five years, so I had to deal with a lot of that. So, The, um, the recent discovery of um, the, I'm going to call it the Hobbit because I can't remember the proper name, uh, Homo floresiensis. Thank you. Yes, I can do Artificus ramensis. <laughs> Ramidus, Thank you. Yes. There was a song for that one, though, so it makes it easier. But I was going to say, that seems to have um, inspired a lot of people who were looking for Orang Pendak. Because they, yeah. I think that from a folkloric perspective, they felt like, well, if you have an evidence of a tiny person living there. And we know that um, the, the, the Hobbit people lived contemporaneous to other uh, right. of, of, of our species. Right. Although maybe not any of us on that island. Well, right, right, with yeah. the, right. Maybe not. Maybe there's no claim to the folklore carrying that forward. I can, I can relate to that hope. I got that feeling. Yeah, it was like things were announced. Ooh, yeah. ooh, could that mean? Well, right. No, I, I, I'm a fan. I would love the idea of anything like that, especially any hominid being discovered. I think it's fantastic news. Right, you know, right. I mean, it makes the cover of nature or science real fast. Right, right. So, <laughs> if, if an amateur uh, zoologist or a cryptozoologist discovered, captured, killed, or proved the existence. Of, uh, of of a living Orang Pendak, that would be big news. Yeah, so, no, uh, certainly. I mean, so. yeah, it's very difficult to prove a negative, right? We cannot be a hundred percent sure right. these things don't exist, right? But 
neither can we be 100% sure about a lot of things in life. And you have to make choices and you have to make decisions about how you spend your time. And when the evidence is like 99.99% pretty sure they don't exist, that's certainly pretty fruitless for most of us who have real things to do with our time. So Indeed, but what that story also tells us is that when we find new evidence that is contrary to our expectations, science will grab it and say, rewrite the story because that's you right. have to make the story fit the facts. Yeah, we're not close, uh, close-minded in science. You have to have the evidence, of right. course. But that's the problem. These people have not produced evidence that any real scientist will take seriously. That's true. And at this point now, you know, some of these things like the, the, uh, the Bigfoot story, you know, things like the fact that no single bone or any other recognizable um, preserved part of that animal has ever turned up is now really damning evidence against it. And both of us have tromped around the Pacific Northwest jungles for quite some time of our lives. We mostly in Washington, Oregon, him mostly in British Columbia, and, and uh, I guess mostly there. And, uh, you know, we've, we've been in the woods. We've seen bears. We've seen elk. You know, they're, they're there. And they leave bones behind, even if they're rare animals. And Bigfoot never has done that, you know. The, the bear skull thing just cracks me up. Yeah, uh, not only have I found a bear skeleton, but my brother did also in the course of shepherding. Uh, uh, the Bigfoot researcher uh, Bindernagel told me that he personally found a bear skeleton, or maybe more, maybe maybe as many as three. And uh, and you can find several examples in the Bigfoot literature, Bigfoot re- researchers who personally found bear skulls. So that uh, yeah, that whole bear skull. Oh, you're talking about the. Yeah, Grover Kranz has claimed that yeah. no one's ever found a naturally killed bear. Yeah, why don't I, we find Bigfoot bones? Well, we don't find bear bones, and bear bones are there, and right. obviously bears are much more common than Bigfoot, so therefore, if we find bear, bear bones very rarely, we yeah. should never find Bigfoot. Right. I actually documented that from uh, Pennsylvania, did a, a, a study, and they did a 20-year study, 19-year study on uh, bear populations, and uh, how the bears were killed, whether they were live tagged, right. whatever. Yeah, and, people always doing right. that kind of research. Right, yeah. and so the, they were really nice and helped me get that research uh, paper. Uh, but it looks like, on average, just in Pennsylvania, there's about 20 bears that are found naturally killed. That you know, no explanation to the bear fell over dead. You know, yeah. um, so you know it happens and it's proven to happen. So right. for Krantz to have claimed that people have he's talked to many people and they never found these bones. It seemed ridiculous, especially for someone with his training in bone finding. That's right. A, right. Uh, it was it was preposterous on the face of it. I yeah. don't know why he ever made that claim. Well, Krantz made a lot of a lot of a lot of really outlandish claims. So. Yeah. Why is it what everyone remembers? Oh, it was on TV. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reinforcer for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And it had uh, Leonard Nimoy doing the narration for that episode. So. I'm convinced. Yeah, I, I, Spock says it. Yeah, but, but there's so many other elements to that, too. I mean, if any of these supposed you know, images of Bigfoot or sketches or the Patterson-Gimlin film are true, this thing is a fully bipedal, human posture-style uh, hominid, which makes it uh, emerging from Africa somewhere around, you know, around Lucy or something like that. And it, yet, if they, these people who claim it's related to Gigantopithecus are correct, well, Gigantopithecus comes way deeper in the root of apes. It would never have been bipedal. It would have been totally different looking. And so they're completely inconsistent with even simple anthropology. Yeah, I, some of the, the recreations of uh, Gigantopithecus, I think, stretch... Uh, the, well, they're, they're, they're more theatrical yes, than, than anthropological. Because it's right. based on a handful of teeth and right. a few jaw skull frames. Right. So. There's not much to go by. Hopefully they won't offend Lauren. So, <laughs> so I think, well, I think Bill Munns, I think, has done some of that recreation work and, and made the big full-size models of what he thinks it looked like. So, um, I don't believe it keeps up with the uh, uh, 
the, the science. So, so you, you guys focus mostly on Bigfoot and Nessie, or what's what you well, cover those everything? Are the, those, uh, those are the matinee. Those are the ones that I've dug really deeply in, into. Right. Uh, the two biggest, yeah. Uh, yeah, they're, they're getting the, the full treatment. Every yeah, month. you've got two chapters in each. So. Yeah, 15,000 words on each one. Right. So. I, dig, I really read, wrote the intro chapters. I wrote Makeli Mbembe already, because that was fresh in my mind, because I did a monster quest. It was about two years ago now. And I was the token skeptic uh, monster quest. You know, it was all this, the usual uh, mumbo-jumbo, lots of shots. It means nothing whatsoever. And those two same creationist uh, zoologists, quote-unquote, uh, who were trying to you know, find you know, uh, McKelly on the river, and every scene showed them as bumbling amateurs who don't know the first thing about field biology. And everything they tried to do in that episode showed they had no clue as to what they were doing. Of course, at the time I saw the show and taped the show, I didn't realize that the other people in the program were creationists. I found this out after I did the research for the chapter and dug up their backgrounds. But in any case, uh, what was interesting was that you know they would do things like show pictures of a hole in the bank of a river. They didn't witness anything. It's just a hole in the bank of the river. It may be a crocodile burrow. It may be a natural hole. And they're getting all this story about how this supposed McKinley Bembe, the size of a sauropod, was in a hole that was only four feet in diameter. Or they, the thing they tried to do to me when I was interviewing on camera with them was they brought this wrapped up package and said, okay, we're going to you know, film live when you open this up and look at it and get your reactions. So I open it up and look at it. And it's a lump of plaster with no shape whatsoever. And so then they show me a picture of the hole in the ground that they had molded with this lump of plaster. still didn't look like anything, okay? And after four or five prompts, I don't know why they figured that this was ever going to change anything. I said, this is just a lump of plaster. They found a hole in the ground. They poured plaster in it. That's all it is. It bears no resemblance to any track of any known animal, certainly not to a dinosaur track, which we know very well. There are thousands of them documented. And why they ever thought this was a trackway, you know, there's lots of holes in the ground. You can pour plaster in them until the cows come home. You know? <laughs> the, 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 it may be they were looking for something like Dino from the Flintstones. Oh, uh, well, that, that's so about the right size, round, yeah. Right, yeah so. so anyway, it was such a bizarre episode. And then when I see how the final edit came out, you know, it was all, you know, lots lots of footage of traveling the river. Not a single thing that was even remotely evidentiary. Yeah, I don't know why they canceled Monster Quest, but I have to suspect it was something to do with the lack of monsters <laughs> that appeared on the show. So. They, they did a lot of fluff to keep it going. But well, they, they tried Ghost to... Hunters in, what, season six or seven? Yeah, I mean, yeah. they keep well, Ghost going. Hunters find things. Have you not seen well, the show? Well, you know, they find ghosts. Well, but I, I don't think... think which, thing, which episode was that? I don't... I'm, sh- I'm thinking. Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> But, but the difference with Monster Quest is that, you know, there's only so many cryptids that have been just, uh, talked about. I think they ran out of topics, you know. Yeah, well, they... they the ghost in, stories are everywhere, and they're all season the one, they actually switched over to talking about, you know, giant fish. and you Right, know, but, right. Well, there are giant fish. They're not really a cryptological... Uh, that's the conventional zoology document right, right, right. at that point, yeah. Right, and exactly. And, well, and that's why we have Monster Talk, in a sense, is because... You can talk about monsters, and it leads very naturally into talking about real science, which right. many people have a passion for and are interested in unusual things. Biology has given us so many diverse, astonishing adaptations. Right. As does paleontology, with those amazing things we do know exist. Yeah, so it's just... Uh, did exist. It, or did, exactly, right. right? So, you know, the, the sort of CSI-type work you do as a paleontologist, working for bones to figure out what these creatures look like, looking at fossils... What kind of things were alive at the same time from a botany perspective? Uh, it's just astonishing what real science can tell us, and so um, I, I want to. I like to use this show as a forum to talk about that. Yes, yeah. and that's that is a very important contrast because every year I go to see what my professional colleagues have done in the previous year, and it's astounding what we come up with. And there's a tremendous amount of cool stuff being found. 
You know, and it doesn't take that much to get into the field. I mean, the meetings have to amateurs to begin with. And you hear all these people chasing phantasms when they could actually be doing real science. You know, sad, but true. Yeah. It's, 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 it's interesting how often uh, creationism lies at the yeah. root of, of these cryptozoological mysteries. Like, uh, I'm also looking into the Yeti and the great sea serpent for the book. And, and uh, the uh, uh, Philip Henry Goss, the... Uh, the Ongfellows guy, the guy who uh, uh, who asked why, you know, did did Adam Adam and Eve have navels? Yes. Yeah. Um, he, uh, you know, his his uh, uh, arguments were rejected at the time, but they underlie much of modern modern creationism. And uh, he was the first one to propose that a relic population of plesiosaurs uh, could explain the great sea serpent. And uh, that that uh, uh, you know that's. Not totally lost of history, but it surprised me to learn that. (laughs) But of course, at the time, he was defending what was still a majority viewpoint because he was just five years before the Origin of Species was published. uh, And all his his theology offended everybody, both religious and non religious at the time. Mm -hmm. He wasn't out of the realm of what was scientifically possible in, say, 1840s or 1850s Mm -hmm. because they knew very little about any prehistoric life except for plesiosaurs and things that were found in Lyme Regis in England. They were the first big prehistoric monsters found before dinosaurs were recognized as what they were. And so that was people's image of prehistoric past. The earliest images you see drawn by artists of the time portraying the prehistoric past, they focus on ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs because those were the first things found by the famous Mary Anning, one of the first female paleontologists and one of the pioneers in the Lyme Regis area of England. I, well, I can't wait to tell my daughters about it. I'm very excited about that. So, yep. Uh, yep. But then, of <laughs> course, young now, so. did not only Gossie's theology explanation fail in its own time, but, of course, as more stuff was discovered, of course, it became absurd as well. So, Wow. So, so uh, in all your research, what do you think are the most plausible cryptids? Oh, and moving on. <laughs> no, that's, a, that's a very good question. It's, it's, it's probably the, the more obscure, the more plausible is a right. rule of thumb. I mean, the bigger the habitat, the more plausible. So, like, uh, you know, Nessie, you're talking about large animals in a small space, which is being searched exhaustively. And was covered by a glacier 20,000 years ago. <laughs> Just very recently, a solid chunk of ice. Um, uh, that way, you know, that, that kind of thing you can rule out pretty easily. Uh, are there large discoveries left to be made in the world's oceans? Um, depends what you mean by large, but almost certainly there are discoveries. Right, we have those all the time. I mean, yeah. especially because we're discovering that there's a huge wealth of these enormous deep sea squid, mm-hmm. uh, which are known from a handful of washed up, really battered specimens, so we know they're real. And only recently have, you know, they're, they're elusive, so very rarely do have a, a deep-sea submersible actually get a glimpse of one in life. They look totally different in life. But, you know, you go, for example, to Monterey Bay Aquarium in California, and they have a routine history of driving these submersibles way down in that deep water off Monterey Bay. And they can see all these brand-new squid down there all the time, and they're huge, 9, 10 feet long, some of them, uh, and many of which have never been seen because they never wash to the surface. If they die, they're eaten real fast. That's one of my favorites, actually. Uh, Daniel Cohen used to write about that in uh, the, the World's Greatest Monsters when I was a kid, right. reading monster books. So former Psychop member. So. <laughs> well, at least we know those are real, because several yeah. of them, like Arcatooth, yeah. have actually washed up in reasonably complete fashion, but they're so rarely seen. 
Yeah. And we don't know how many there are and how widespread they are. I'm, I'm relieved. I thought you were saying you believed in psychop members. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I don't understand there, that far. Psychop members <laughs> frequently wash up on the beach. And, uh, <laughs> so, I think uh, the alien big cats phenomenon is also interesting to me. Um, it, it just because it could be plausible that someone could have lost a big cat, you know. Oh, sure, it's plausible yeah. on the face of it. Right, so. Yeah. yeah. But it's kind of funny, though. Much of it results from simple inability to just recognize common objects. I mean, chupacabra. Right. Every time there's another chupacabra on the Internet, it's another carcass or sometimes a live one that's lost its hair. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's a zoologist, you look quickly at the snout, the teeth. Doesn't matter if the hair is there. You can tell what the animal is, but people don't know what animals look like without hair, and so they immediately say it's hairless. Therefore, it's something I've never seen before. Yeah, it's, <laughs> that's true. And if it's bloated, it's even more hard to recognize. Uh, the, speaking of that and alien big cats, uh, it reminds me of a case from a few years ago where uh, some some sheep had been predated upon by something. And uh, cryptozoologists were hopeful that this was uh, evidence of, of alien big cats in, in the United States. And um, uh, and as a shepherd, I thought, but that's exactly the kind of, of wound pattern we would expect from predation by domestic dogs. But here's the thing: is that the the uh, the sheep worker, the livestock worker, who was there on the on the scene with with the sheep, was saying that that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and this really kind of blew me away. That, that uh, um, first first-hand evidence is not enough, obviously. Yeah, well, <laughs> particularly given the, the kind of uh, uh, foundational ethos of, of cryptozoology, which is that you should ask locals what what right. is there. But know? they didn't then. Yeah, uh, yeah. But this is like uh, uh, you know, city people projecting. A, a, yeah, uh, belief jumps ahead of evidence again. So. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I'll tell you, the fact is, I could keep talking to you guys for a long time. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. So I, but it looks like from my timer here that we're at 30 minutes, so I should probably cut it short. But can, uh, can you have any more questions? I do. Let me ask a couple things. When do you expect your book to be finished? I know that's a, a nebulous question, but... Well... As uh, soon as possible. Yeah, as soon as possible. <laughs> I'm, I'm pressuring Daniel with every every other week with another email to work on his parts. And then when he gets close to the end, I'm going to quickly crank out the last of my parts. And then there's always that you know process of production and and the printing and artists. plus he's doing the art, which is a, going to be a big selling point for this book. So even people, so this is a, it's a pop up book. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a production. Yeah, but, things jump and go <laughs> But no, I mean, you know, he'll have a really famous, you know, beautiful cover image, and so, and Columbia's willing to spend the money to put beautiful art in there. We're going to have color in it. How many pages do uh, you think are you looking well, at? Let's, uh, maybe we should hold off on some of the oh, some of the specifics. Okay, yeah, gotcha, okay. gotcha, gotcha. Anyway, we'll but, keep that on the DL. Yeah. Right, so. <laughs> That's what the kids say. (laughs) (laughs) I did catch that one, though. (laughs) All right. Let me wind this up. Thanks so much for talking to us today. It's been very fun. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Monster Talk. Thanks again for listening to Monster Talk. This episode was brief as we rushed to prepare for Dragon Con 2010. But our next episode will be back to full length and we'll tackle a real-world monster that will creep most of you out completely. You can find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and blogs at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk is produced with the much-needed cooperation of Skeptic Magazine. Our theme music is from Pete Stealing Monkeys. If you enjoy our show, please give us a review on iTunes and come by the Skeptic Forums and say hello. Thanks a lot. Hungry for more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit Skeptic.com today.